Before I begin, there apparently uh, today is uh, Tuesday, but yesterday, which well, by the way was Tuvishvat, right? Uh, there was an incredible catastrophe actually that happened in Turkey, and from what I understand, uh, it's, it's absolutely devastating, you know. Uh, but before I begin, let me just mention this year should be a uh, should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Reuven and Yeshaya Ben Yisrael, Benjamin Wolf, Ben Tzviash, and Baruch Ben Benjamin Wolf. Yeah. In any case, so I wanted to speak a little about that. Very briefly, you know, because this kind of thing is obviously, uh, you know, something which uh, <clears throat> should be mentioned, should be brought about, brought down and so on, you know. Anyway, what's interesting is that happened, what happened, first of all, as far as I know, I have my limited uh, resources here, I'm giving this here from Eretz Israel, but uh, it happened, uh, you know, Monday, uh, something like 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, which is uh, Tu B'Shvat. Now, Tu B'Shvat, we know, right, uh, and I'm going to speak about that uh, today, because uh, it just happened, uh, you know, yesterday and so on. But this devastation, this earthquake happened on Tu B'Shvat. And, uh, in fact, what happened was, is that it was a 7.8 earthquake on the Richter scale, which is very powerful, very powerful. It's unusual. And I understand that thousands and thousands of people have died. Somebody told me that 5,000 buildings have collapsed. Uh, could you imagine? And we're not talking about two-family houses. We're talking about, you know, maybe ten-story buildings and so on. Could you imagine the devastation in Turkey? And it happened in um, <clears throat> southeast Turkey, including Syria, maybe some other countries and so on. And obviously it was a devastating earthquake, you know. So they're expecting tens of thousands of people to have been killed by this earthquake. And not only that, but apparently what there was is not just one earthquake. Shortly thereafter, there was a second earthquake. It wasn't even an aftershock. Because many times after an earthquake, you have what's called aftershocks. You know, so the earthquake itself is devastating. It's, in this case, it was a 7.8. Whereas uh, the aftershock, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, 2 or 3 or whatever. But apparently there was a second earthquake that was 7.2 which is as, almost as bad as the other one. So we're talking about at least two major earthquakes, and I understand that there have been four. So they must be going out of their mind. I mean, the, 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 the fear, because it's one after the other. That's what seems to be happening. And not only that, uh, you know, to add to the devastation, it is now going to be 14 degrees below zero for the next 10 days in southeast Turkey. 14 degrees, could you imagine that? I mean, not only do they not have a home, who knows how many people have been injured and so on, but they, how can they survive in 14 degrees below zero? Obviously not. So what we're looking at is a major catastrophe, but what we're really looking at is a major display of Midas Hadin, of justice. Punishment, that's obviously what it is. 
that the Russian had visited upon Turkey, Syria, maybe one or two other countries, and so on. Now, what's important to consider is when it happened. It happened on Tubishvat. Now, Tubishvat, we know, which is the 15th day of Shvat, that's when this series of earthquakes happened, is really a Rosh Hashanah. It is a Rosh Hashanah, the Gemara, the Talmud says this, the Mishnah, so on, that it's the Rosh Hashanah of Ilonis, of Paris, of fruit, you see, of, of the trees, yeah, uh, because that's when the fruit of the tree begins to blossom. And that's called the Rosh Hashanah of trees, Ilonis, and so on, you know. And this is a Mishnah. And it says in the Mishnah that this is a, the world is judged uh, on, on the Rosh Hashanah, and the Mishnah, uh, the Talmud reckons that there are four of them. There are four uh, Rosh Hashanahs, one of which, like I said, is Tubishvat. <coughs> and the world is judged. Now, when the world is judged, it doesn't mean only for that particular item, because there are peripheral judgments. There are peripheral judgments Hi. that occur. It's Laura. <laughs> I'm Hi, Rabbi. I'm giving this year now. In any okay. case, so this is what's happening. Okay. So uh, this, therefore, tremendous devastation of Turkey happened on Tubishvat, which is a Rosh Hashanah, which is a Yom Hadin, and it includes many other peripherals of a Judgment Day, you see. <clears throat> and uh, obviously, therefore, it, it, it seems so incredible that this devastation happened on a Yom Hadin, on a day of justice. Now, we, we don't really know why things happen, certainly local. It's very hard to know why the Rebunsham does anything. But we do know, obviously, just from the extent of destruction, right, uh, that it's a major punishment, obviously, especially when tens of thousands of lives hundreds of millions of dollars are going to be spent fixing up everything, you know, repairing everything and so on. So the question really, if we can think about it, is that uh, what's going on? So there are several thoughts which I'd like to share. The first thing, Turkey is famous for a tremendous genocide that they performed. Uh, during World War One. I, I think it's 1916, the Turks threw out the Armenians and they forced them to go over the Syrian desert. Over a million of them, basically. Some people say it's 1.2 million Armenians. And that was, a, you know, a tremendous devastation for the people of Armenia. Uh, it was, uh, you know, an expulsion and therefore a tremendous de genocide. Over one million Armenians died because of what Turkey did to Armenia and their next door, Azerbaijan, and so on, see. In any case, mm -hmm. this is what the Turks did, you see. And they've always tried to minimize, maybe even deny what they did. Mm -hmm. Well, what we see interesting, and we see it from Ukraine, what the Russian is doing seems to be paying back many nations that he has a score to settle with them. You see, in other words, it's called payback time. We've already seen 
that it's happening, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, magnitude with uh, uh, Ukraine. And now this devastation happened with Turkey, uh, you see. And um, which would make sense. Why? Because you have to remember that before the Mashiach comes, especially toward the end, there's always some type of retribution. The Russian wants to settle scores, as they say, you know. And apparently this is what's happening. All over the world we have all kinds of weather extremes, right? You know, like for instance in Buffalo, there was a snowstorm that was over seven feet tall. That's a sakono. I mean, you can't even survive in that kind of a snowstorm. Imagine being locked in like that. Uh, but it's all over the United States, the drought in Los Angeles and so on. So there's no question that there's a tremendous amount of weather extremes, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, natural disasters that are happening really all over the world. So now we've experienced something that has happened to Turkey. I mean, this is going to set them back, you know, tremendously and so on. But again, I mean, you know, it's hard to know exactly what happened with Turkey, but why? But we do know that they killed or are responsible for the death of over one million Armenians without any mercy, which is interesting. Uh, so this is what I'm saying. I believe it. It's a year. It's really a payback time. It's a year for many, many things going on in the entire world. You see. So I wanted to mention that, that these things are not an accident. We're not talking here about something that just happened to happen. There's a whole what's called chesed for what's going on. In any case, so I just wanted to make those statements, those ideas about Turkey and the general state of the world, you see. Now, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, a, a certain concept, certain idea. Uh, like I say, yesterday was Tu Bishvat, right, which I had mentioned briefly now that Tu Bishvat is a very, very important day. It's one of the four Rosh Hashanahs that the uh, Talmud, that the Mishnah talks about. You see, and it's also obviously, like I said, Rosh Hashanah, and the world in many ways is judged, and so on, you know. Um, so the concept of Tubishvat is really many is a very important concept, you see. And in many ways this idea of Tubishvat is tied in to the redemption process. And that's what I wanted to do, speak about that, uh, the redemption process and the significance in many ways of Tubishvat. In any case, when you look at Hashkofa in general, you see you notice that there's certain patterns that keep repeating themselves, you see. And I'm going to go through some of them, and from within that context, we can understand that either Tubishrat or whatever is all part of that pattern. What is the pattern of what's called the Tikkun process, which is the entire attempt at the Jewish people to bring God back? you know, into the creation, into the world itself, and to usher in the Messianic era. There are two major patterns. One is called Stalkus, 
Istalkos means removal, okay? And the second pattern is called Ispashtos, to expand, to extend, to, uh, to grow and so on, you see? So these are two patterns which in many ways always happen. The, the uh, restriction of the world and also the expansion of the world. Now, of the world, I specifically mean the presence of God. There is always a time when God is removed from the world, you see. And then there's a time that God is present in the world. So when he's removed or concealed, that's called histalkos, removal, the, the divine presence. And when he is exposed, in that sense, revealed, that's called hispashtus, which means the expansion of God. And these things go back and forth, depending on the acts of the Jews. You see? So let's take a look at this, how it works. And once you see this, you'll also understand uh, the uh, basic messianic process or the process of redemption itself. Especially today. Today illustrates it very strongly, very powerfully, this whole concept. There are basically, there are certain realities uh, that the version does. And I'm going to give them to you. There are basically um, a lot of them, or I'm going to list six of them different realities that God created until he finally came to the reality of our world. And we will see that this is what's called histalkos. It's a descent. It is removing reality further and further away from God so as to provide a certain climate or environment that man can exist and therefore be tempted and be tried, tested, and so on. So we're going to look at a reality of, of this, of what's called, I call it, the descent, where things go down, the histalkos. So the first reality, obviously, is the reality of God. And that's unknowable. We have no idea who God is, what his real nature is, and so on. Which I, I've spoken in the past extensively. Then what God does is he creates something which is called a representation of himself, although obviously it's not himself, but it is some type of divine force that represents him in terms of the creation. And what those forces are, those are the ten spheres. Those are ten, what appears to be emanations from his being, although it's not really his being, he creates them, the spheres are really created entities. But they have a nature which is incredibly powerful. They actually uh, are, are sort of like his handiwork where he uses them, tools, instruments, to create other realities. So that's the first reality, or I should say the second. God is the first. These ten emanations, which are, uh, they're referred to as divine, because that's, they represent God. These are the spheres. Then, God creates, what he does is he uses these spheres to create the greatest entity ever known and will ever know, be known. 
And that is called a neshama, a soul. <coughs> See, what God does is He creates what's called an other. Because one of the fundamental characteristics that we see in the theory of God is called Ene Bavadoi. Besides God, there is nothing else. So, what God has to make or do is to create the possibility of an other. Because right now, Ene Bavadoi. Besides God, there is nothing else. And that's not figurative. It is literal. So what God does, and that's one of the first acts of creation, is He creates a reality called other. Besides God, something else can also exist. You see, uh, that's the creation of a phenomenon called an other, or in Hebrew it's called the zulosoi. And that zulosoi, or that other being, so to speak, that God creates, you know, besides Himself existing, but He creates this, is the neshama, is the soul of a Jewish person. Uh, you see, or whoever has the neshama. In any case, so the neshama, the soul, we have no idea what it is, what its nature is, but it's basically us in that sense, okay? And that is the greatest entity ever made, you see. So that's a third reality, the reality of the neshama, which is a direct result of God's creating the concept or the phenomenon of other, you see. Now, then you have a fourth reality, right, and that's called spiritual, right? The neshama is greater than just being spiritual, you see. It's called a zulosoi. It's something other than God. That's how close it is, in that sense, to God. So he then creates a spiritual reality. And that's the reality of, uh, of spiritual beings. Angels, for instance, uh, you know, uh, other kind of forces that he creates. And they are in the realm of a spiritual world. So that's called the Oilem of Ruchni, you see. And that encompasses several worlds, different classes of angels. And there are ten classes of angels. And they all inhabit these worlds and so on, you know. But their reality is much inferior, much inferior to the reality of the Nishama. Then if the God creates a spiritual world, right, of angelic beings and so on, he then creates a new kind of reality. And that is Geshem, material or physical, right? God creates a reality which is physical, and that's the reality that we know about, you know, the physical universe. That's the entire, you know, what is that, 13.7 billion light years across. That is the reality of the world of Geshem, you know, physical materiality and so on. Uh, and he creates that, and what he does, he combines, and this is really remarkable, uh, he combines the reality of Neshama, which is the greatest entity ever made, right? after the Sphiris. And he combines that with Geshem. He inserts, so to speak, a Neshama, that entity, into the physical world. So uh, the Neshama now has what's called a physical body. You see, even though <clears throat> the Neshama, the soul, is of a completely different nature than the physical world. But God wants the soul to be inserted into the physical universe. So the basic idea is that the physical universe will now 
serve as a barrier, as a blockage to the ability of the neshama to see that there is a spiritual world. Certainly not to see its own nature, because that is the supreme test. Will that individual, or the soul, will that come to its efforts, a realization, right, that there is an entire reality, right, which is spiritual, it's even greater than spirituality, will it recognize that, and therefore begin to serve God, who is above that all, or will be fooled, you see, and think that all there is is a physical reality. There is no spirituality. <coughs> or even, God forbid, there is no God, or whatever. <coughs> so that's the supreme test. What does the Neshama recognize about reality, you see? And therefore, this world, the Neshama, is in this world physically as a barrier. <coughs> and this world, this universe, is called the Olam HaShofel, the lower world. It's purely physical. What do we see? We see that this is the, called the descent, where man has been removed from God in order to allow him a situation <coughs> where he can be tested. You see? So that's it. You have those six realities. The reality of God, the reality of the neshama, which is called an other. Then there, uh, I should say before that, the spheres, uh, the divine emanations. Then the reality of the neshama, as I said. Then the reality of the spiritual universes. Okay. And then there's the reality of the geshem, which is the material. Now there's one more reality, and the original intent of God was that. This reality, I and mean, we know that the Nishama is in- inserted into a physical body that we know. But there's one more reality which is even lower than the physical. And that is the satanic reality. It is a reality that's inhabited by the Satan and whatever his minions are that assist him, you see. And he basically has three jobs. The first job is to tempt man, right? To tempt him. That's the first job of the Sultan. In that role, he's called the Yitzhahara. And his job is to try to convince man that he is equal to God, or perhaps he's the only thing that exists, and not God at all. Second idea of the Sultan is that he's also a prosecuting attorney, angel. His job is to prosecute a person in the heavenly tribunal, if that person sins. In that role, he's called the Sultan. Right? The Sultan means an adversary. So he's a prosecutor. And the third role is called the Malchamoras, which is the angel of death. Doesn't mean he kills necessarily, although he does that too. Right? <clears throat> but his job is to execute the judgment that is decided by the heavenly tribunal. There you are. Three jobs for the Sultan. Tempter, prosecutor, and executioner. In other words, what he is really in charge of is the concept of din, or justice. You see, he makes sure that a man will live his life and be forced <coughs> to conform to justice. And based on the amount of 
justice that he does, that is the amount of the future world that he will get, you see. So that satanic world is the lowest one, you see. Now that's also called the Sitra Akhra, the other side, because he is the other side of what? Of the Sitra de Kedusha, the side of holiness, you see. So there are basically two different sides. There's a side of holiness, which is connected in a certain sense to the realm of God. And then there's a side, Sitra Akhra, which means the other side. The side of the Sutton that is connected to the netherworld, however you want to call it and so on. And the main <coughs> climate or environment of that world is the Sutton, his minions, but especially the Zoyamor. Now the Zoyamor, I once mentioned, is a projection of the Sutton. It's sort of like a field, a force field, that projects from his being, and it connects on to different things. And one of the things that the Sutton is connected to is the physical world, you see. So the Sutton is connected to the physical world through what is called <coughs> the Zoyama. That's what it's called. Zoya means pollution, contaminant. That's what it means. Because he is able to pollute or contaminate you, you see, through his projection called the Zoyama. It's like an octopus with his... Uh, tentacles, you know. He's able to control things around him because he has an extension called tentacles. Uh, same idea with the sudden, you see. Now, man being created, uh, right, uh, as we will see, you see, man being created uh, does not have Zoyama in it when he was created. He is pure Nishama that is inserted into pure Geshem. That's all there was at the beginning or before Adam's sin. It was just Adam, right? And he was, like I said, inserted into a physical body. He's not at all connected to the Sutton because Adam, in a certain sense, although we don't know the exact nature of Adam, Mauritian, first man, the first man was not connected to the physical world even though he is physical. But he was not connected to the aspect of the physical world that the Sutton and his Zoyama, right, is connected to, which is interesting. So therefore the Sutton, in order to tempt Adam, had to tempt him external to the body of man. This was the condition that man was in, right, at the end, or right uh, before the sin, which is what he later did, and so on. Uh, that's a very important idea, you see. So we have these type of realities, but the reality of Sutton <coughs> was never really part in a, in, a, in a connected way to the reality of Adam Harishan. However, when he sinned, he became connected to the physical world tremendously. And since he's connected now, he became a true physical being. What a drastic change. So because of that, he is now connected to the Sutton because the Sutton has dominion, control, over the physical world to his, what? To his uh, Zoyama, you see. So therefore, we are now connected to the Zoyama because of the sin of our demolition. And therefore, we are subject to the satanic force called the Zoyama. Now, I once mentioned, but it's really interesting to say, that that means that 
the physical universe is subject to two forces or phenomena, and this is classically satanic. The first force, right, of the Satan, and we are connected to that, uh, that the Zoyma is connected to the physical world, is that in the world of biological creatures, means creatures that truly live, including man, the Satan's Zoyma will deteriorate or decompose biological matter, living matter. So what happens is, obviously, if a person or any creature who lives will decompose, right, then that creature will die. So that's the first thing. You get connected to his world, physical, with his Zoyama, then eventually you die. Because that's what the Sutton does. He's what's called a demolition expert. He destroys. What's interesting also is not just the animate world, but the inanimate world is also connected to the Sutton. And that's the second law of thermodynamics, which is called the law of entropy. That all energy forces dissipate. Everything is cancelled in that sense. Uh, you see, like if you walk into a hot room, eventually it will cool off unless you pump in new energy, new heat. You see, that's also satanic in nature. So this is what happens, very briefly and so on. Now God never intended you know, we to be connected to the Sutton directly. I mean, he wanted the Sutton to influence us, tempt us, which he did, because the manifestation of the Sutton is who? Uh, really is, um, uh, well, there's other Mauritian, but the manifestation of the Sutton is the Nochosh, the snake, you see? But the snake was external to the, uh, the uh, human body. It was a creature outside of it trying to convince it to eat from the tree. You see, once Adam ate from the tree, then immediately he became truly physical. And because he became physical, right, he would be subject to death. So therefore, God never intended this to be. It was up to the choice of Adam. But since Adam did do that, he becomes, as I said, subject to death. So Adam now... What is the job of Adam? Well, the original job of Adam is called to reverse the realities or to retransform the realities. No, it's to get rid of the Geshem where the Geshem actually, what God does, which is interesting, is that he empowers the Neshama to be what it always is, an unbelievable force that can turn any physical matter into a spiritual form. Totally. That's what the Nishama could do. If it was ever released or allowed to be what it could be. But the Russian keeps it in check. Uh, but at a certain time, he wants the Nishama to take the physical body of which it has, you see, and reverse it. That's called zikoch. That is called purifying. To remove the material matter of the body and to change it into an incredibly spiritual form it's almost like it's translucent, you see. And then, after that, to go even further, higher and higher. Uh, so what the Rebunishim really wants is called Zikuch. He wants a retransformation of these realities. He wants to take your Geshem, retransform it into a spiritual form, you see. Uh, however, the problem with that, and actually the, what he would do then, is he would go higher. 
So the, the, the man, once his neshama has the power to reverse the physical body, it would now ascend. That's the spastas. It would change realities. It would change all the worlds, you see, higher and higher, until finally it would get to the world called Olam Habo. And that's the world that the neshama is in. That is the, reward, the world of incredible reward, where it, the neshama itself, can experience God in a way which, which we cannot even begin to comprehend. Where we now actually experience who we are, who God is in that sense, and there's an unbelievable attachment, you see. But that takes a long time. You have to go from what's called the physical world, we transform the physical body into a, let's call it an angelic body, and then to go from an angelic body all the way to a zoosite body, which is the Neshama's real uh, body, so to speak, and then that go, it remains in the future world to be together, connected together for all eternity. That's what God wanted. The problem was, as I mentioned, right, is that Odomarishan became connected to the Sultan because he now became physical because of the sin, right, of eating from the tree. Uh, therefore, his first job now is not just to purify Geshem, which is physical matter. His first job is to evict the Zayamal. You need to get rid of the pollution in the physical body itself before you can begin the journey, right, or the operation of changing the physical body into a higher form, you see? So this became necessitated, why? Became necessitated because of the sin of other Mauritian. And this obviously has now become the, the mission. So he has to get rid of the Zoyama, right? And then he could begin to change, once the Zoyama leaves, right, then the, 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 the man is now without Zoyama, and therefore, obviously, he's no longer subject to death. This is really what occurs, getting rid of the Zoyama, and therefore returning to your previous state of being just the physical body, Geshem, without Zoyama. This is what really occurs in the Messianic era. Right. You see, in the Messianic era, we now are equal to Odom Horishim before the sin. You see. Because the Mashiach Mandova destroys the Sultan. Or whatever, whether he kills them or whatever. So there is no longer any sultan, there's no sitra akhra, other side, right? There's no death, there's no disease, no decomposition, nothing. A man lives forever, never gets sick and so on. And all of this is in the messianic era, because there is no zayama, you see. So that's what happens in the messianic era, you see, where all humans, especially the Jews, will be equal to other Mauritian before the sin. Then, when the world ends in the English year 2240, which is the year 6000, then the entire world will be purified. So the physical universe actually changes, which in many ways is fascinating, you see. The physical universe changes into a spiritual universe. That's what happens. You see, a man also begins to change, where his physical body begins to change after the world is over, and he goes higher and higher. That's the ascent. 
after the descent, the different realities. Now he's ascending, you see. And finally, he enters Kabbalistically what's called Odom Kadmon, primordial man. And what that is, Oilam Habo. That is the future world. And that is a world that he does not remain static. He grows infinitely. The world of Oilam Habo, which is again called Odom Kadmon, primordial man in Kabbalah, that world goes on forever. And a person grows in that world from every nanosecond to nanosecond. I mean, we have no idea what that even means. But that is the world truly within the Shema, who is the Zulosoi, who is the concept of other, the purest form of any entity will now exist in that place, specifically tailored to connect to God and to attach greater and greater. Okay? So, there we see the descent if you recall, where the realities change finally to a physical and also to a world of Zoyama. And then we see the ascent, which is the Hispatsus, right? We see the reversal, and then his growth. And we see what the stages are. Okay, it's a very important concept. Now, just like we see the concept of a descent and an ascent, right, which is part of the Tikkun process, we also see it in the terms of the environment that the Jew- Jewish people find themselves. <clears throat> now, if you recall, after they left, uh, you know, Egypt, and after they left, not only left Egypt, but uh, they went into the desert and so on, they went into Israel. So the first real environment that the Jews found themselves was in their own kingdom. So what God wanted that in their own kingdom they should serve and worship God. It's almost like it's called an Abdus kingdom, a kingdom of servants and slaves to God, where God wanted everybody to do the mitzvahs. So therefore, that era was for many hundreds of years, right? It started off, of course, with Shaul HaMelech. He became king, and continuously, David HaMelech, Shlomo HaMelech, and so on, you see? Uh, so what God wanted to the Jewish people to be in the environment, that environment, right? And to worship and serve God. But obviously it didn't work out that way because they worshipped idols, bad stuff. Right? Uh, So as a result of that, they now entered different environments that they would now be subjected to and this is a descent. It is a descent, right? Where God further removes himself from the Jewish people so they can be tested with more and more concealment of the presence of God. You see. So the first one we encounter is Bovel, Babylon, right? And Babylon was an interesting place, you see. Babylon was a place that was spiritual, but it was Avedizara also. You know, they believed in God or gods, I should say, right? So they had a spiritual sensitivity. The problem was it was filled with Avedizara. It was filled with idol worship and so on. But at least in a certain sense, it was spiritual, because they did believe in a supreme higher being, you see. So that was the first reality as it descended worse and worse, right, to try to pass the test. Then after that, you had what's called Paras, Persia, right? <clears throat> and Persia, of course, uh, was a very physical nation, you see. They were really into pleasure, 
physicality and so on. That's Persia, right? So that's a descent. It's no longer really spiritual in that sense, right? But it's basically tremendous uh, obsession or involvement with Geshem, physicality. Then after that, it got worse, right? Uh, and as a result of that, we come to the next environment called Yovan or Greece. Now Greece, it's not that they were physical, although they were very physical. I mean, they loved the arts and whatever, the plays and literature and all that kind of stuff, right? But they were tremendously into philosophy and science. It was what they thought about, is there an alternative view of reality besides God? So what they did is they came up with an entire different alternative view of reality. It's not only, uh, in that sense, um, physical, but it's an entire chokhmah, wisdom, that the Greeks had. In fact, they are responsible, really, for modernity. Historians view them as the origin of modernity, with Aristotle and, of course, Alexander the Great and so on. See, uh, So that reality is a descent. Why? Because it's bad enough to be, you know, avoid the Zara, but at least a spirituality. It's also bad enough to be really into the physical. But these guys were into Chokhmah. But that Chokhmah, that wisdom, right, was an alternate view of reality, which makes it much more difficult to see the truth that God is in control and dominates all creation. And so in that sense, this is an environment of descent. Then we have the descent again, but this time it's not Greece, it's Rome. Now, Rome did originate certain things, but mostly Rome was the bearer, you see. Rome was the bearer of Greek wisdom. They brought it throughout the entire world. That's who they really were. Uh, see, and this is the descent. And Rome then, of course, which I've mentioned many times, Rome as a country or a nation became a religion, and that was Christianity. And then, of course, Christianity is basically uh, the, uh, the whole concept of uh, Western civilization. And ultimately, this is the bottom descent. The interesting thing we find today is that this type of civilization called Rome, or Christianity, or Western civilization, which is what it really is, right? And they have deteriorated. Not only have they adapted all the previous attributes of the previous environments, but they have now incredibly corrupted all the environments. And when you look around today, you realize the incredible depravity and corruption of the world. I don't want to go into all the craziness that the world is into, but it is severely depraved, promiscuous, corrupt, and so on, you see. And that is the greatest descent of all to find yourself in that type of environment is very bad. It's very hard to pull yourself out of that. And that's what the world is into. The world is into themselves. That's what it is. The world is into defiance of God. They are into defiance of morality and ethics, you see. And they, they are into stuff which is not even... It's anti-civilization. The whole concept of LGBTQ the whole concept of not only that, but the whole concept of, uh, you know, you have to be careful of your pronouns, right? Abortions, murder, and so on. <clears throat> Incredible corruption of 
society, this is what we're into. So that is the environment that has the lowest descent. However, there will be an ascent. What is that? The Messianic era. As I mentioned, that the Messianic era is something, right, uh, which the world has never seen before. It is the uh, changing completely of the entire world order, you see. Uh, and uh, it's a reality that we have never really even seen. In any case, so there you are. The descent of environments as the Jews get tested more and more difficultly, right, and so on. And then finally, when the world will have reached its most depraved state, right, then the Messianic era, which will be the complete ascent. Now, we also find, interestingly enough, these concepts of where it gets worse and it gets better by time, the cycle of time. Let's take a look at that. And that's where we begin to see Tubishra. <clears throat> the world starts off with the creation, which happened in Tishrei, right? So in Tishrei, we know it's Rosh Hashanah, and the world is created. But in the same time, almost immediately, <clears throat> man began to fall. That was the fall of man, because he ate from the tree, you see. Not only that, but you also have the whole concept of Cain and Hevel. Cain killed Hevel. That's the first murder. So you begin to find in Tishrei the real descent of man. Tishrei is the beginning of that cycle of the fall of man. Then the next month is Cheshvan. Now Cheshvan, man falls to such an extent where God brings a marble. A marble. And this is the generation of Noach, you see. And the marble was worse than Tishrei in the generation of Odom. <coughs> because the world had reached the Memteshari Tumah, the 49 levels of defilement or contamination or pollution to such an extent where God said, I want to destroy the world. So this is what happened, right, in terms of Cheshvan. Then finally there is a slight, not a scent, but there's a stabilization. And that stabilization is really that's the occurrence of Hanukkah, you see. Because Hanukkah, what all Hanukkah basically did is it reestablished the status quo of the Jewish people by rededicating the temple, you see. So it formally reestablished what was. So at least that is some type of, as I said, uh, stabilization of the descent that started from the month of Tishrei then we have the concept of Cheshvan, right? And Kisrei, like I said, is a reestablishment of that time. Then we come to the month of Teves. Now Teves, again, is a further descent. You see, <clears throat> what does that mean? Because Teves is a certain type of month that's the model of Esau. Esau, the brother of Yaakov, his model means his month that apparently he becomes supremely victorious is the month of Tebes. And that's one of the reasons why Asar Tebes was the beginning of the destruction of the temple, right? At the hands of Babylon, right? Then you have many holidays which are in Tebes, you know, let's say Christianity, 
or Christmas or whatever, and that's the holiday of Rome and so on. And what Rome is basically is Esau. So Teves is a month that has the model of Esau. It's a winter month, which makes sense. It's a month, right, that has the longest night, right, the darkest time, and the freezing cold, the worst part of the winter, is in Teves, and so on. So that's the descent, you see. But then it starts to go up, that the mazel of Esau changes and disappears. And that's the month of Shvat. And Shvat is where we find the New Year's, right, the New Year, of the, uh, the trees and so on, where the fruit begin to bloom. So Shvat is really uh, the beginning of the mazel of what's called Yosef. And that is the ascent. We were now coming up, away from Esau. So the mantle of Yosef starts at Tubishvat on the 15th day of Shvat, which is the Rosh Hashanah, like I said, right, of trees and so on, right? <clears throat> and that's a very good sign. And it's also a, a time when there's a lot of retribution in Shvat, because that's the, uh, when we have an ascent, we not only have the ascent of Kedusha, holiness, we also have the ascent, right, in terms of the retribution of sinners, which are apparently, you know, people who are uh, somewhat deserving of what God does, uh, and so on, you know, which is unfortunately happening now, and so on. Uh, but in any case, so Shabbat, which starts to be Shabbat, half of the month of Shabbat begins the model of Yosef, you see. And that continues all the way into Ador. Now Ador is the month of Yosef, basically, you see. I think the astronomical sign or the astrological sign is Pisces, the fish. And the fish we know, of course, is the sign of Yosef. Uh, by the way, the sign, the astrological sign of Tebes is Capricorn, the goat. We know Esau is a seer, is a goat, Harseir. You see, in any case. Uh, so Adar is the uh, beginning or the month of, the real month of Yosef. <clears throat> and we know, of course, that Adar has Purim, which is the end of Haman. It's the end of the ability of evil, in a certain sense, to flourish. And that's what Adar is. And you have to remember, that's the Mashiach bin Yosef. That month, in many ways, is a messianic month of Mashiach bin Yosef. You see, then of course we have what's called Nisan, which is the actual redemption itself, you see. And that's in the, the month of David, and that's when the redemption of Egypt, of course, took place. And Nisan, therefore, it says that just like they were redeemed in Egypt, in Nisan, they will be redeemed in, in, uh, in Nisan in the future also. So that remains the model of Nisan the model of the Geula, the redemption itself. Then we continue with the 49 days of Eeyore, right, when they left Egypt, and then of course Sivan, right, so Eeyore is an intermediary month, you see. And Sivan, of course, is the month of Matantara. Uh, you see how the, the months of the year, they go from, they go down, up, down, and then now we go back up again. You see, it's decent, and it's ascent. Then, of course, you have the month of Tamas, and Tamas has Shiva Osibat Tamas, which is the golden, the Chetu Egel, the 
consider the golden calf, of course, you know, and that's Moshe Rabbeinu broke the Luchas. So that's Thomas. There we go down again, right? And then, of course, you have Of, right? Tishbov, which is the destruction of the two temples. And then we begin to go up again, Elo, which is the month of Tshuva, you see. And again, we start back again in Tishrei. Mm-hmm. So you notice that the Jews are always being subjected to going closer to God or getting further away, what's called Histalkus, right? To remove yourself, to descend away from God, or Hispashtus, to spread, to extend, to grow toward God. And you have many cycles that mirror this. Descend and then ascend and so on. <clears throat> and I've illustrated, you know, the whole purpose of creation and stuff, the realities, the kingdoms, the empires and so on, and then the months of the year. There's a continuous flow up and down in terms of the idea, you know, the Tikkun process. So we see therefore what as I said, Tubishvat. Tubishvat really is the beginning of the mazel of Yosef. It's the beginning. So as such, it's a very good time. Because like I said, that leads into Ado, which leads into Nisan, and so on, you see. So, so far, this is the, basically what we see happening. Now what we see also, which I just want to mention, is Egypt itself in Nisan. There was a descent. The Jews were at the 49th level of tumor, right? They were at the 49th level of sinning, which we know from the Chazal that tell us that. So that's a tremendous amount of descent. But then, with the advent of the redemption, it began to ascend. And you had the Marcus, right? You had the plagues or the blows against Egypt. And not only that, as it was a punishment to Egypt, each Makkah was a tremendous revelation of some aspect or characteristic of the Divine Presence. A Makkah was not just a punishment to the Egyptians. It was also a revelation of some type of Divine uh, exposure that the Jews were able to see, you see. And that, of course, went up, right? Then you had when they... uh, the Egyptians threw them out, which of course means that God gathered the Jews to leave Egypt. That's what he wanted. Then of course you had the Jews at the uh, Kriya Shamsaf, right? Where the Jews themselves at that Kriya Shamsaf began to see revelations which were absolutely beyond belief. Like it says in the Chazal, that a maidservant, a Hebrew maidservant, saw more Kabbalistically and spiritually and divine secrets. Then Yechezkel, who is the author of the divine chariot, one of the fundamental structures of Kabbalah, she saw more than he did, you see. And because that's the beginning of the ascent toward redemption. Then of course, finally, you come to uh, the, uh, well then you had the whole 49 days uh, where the Jews ascended. And finally they're standing at Matatera, uh, which almost became a messianic era, had the Jews not done the golden calf, then Moshe Rabbeinu would have been Moshe Yosef, 